If you would please, for our Bible study this evening, and if you don't have notes, they're at the back door of the auditorium, but we're headed over to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, as we continue in the series that we just decided to pick up during this month of December called <clears throat> Christmas Reflections. And as I mentioned this morning, what I wanted to do is something that was a little bit different than what we've done up to, uh, up to the past when we've talked about some of the Christmas events. And so I started off thinking, well, let me just pick up the Gospels and read and see if there's some Something that I've not covered before when it comes to the Christmas story, and it dawned upon me I'd never covered the genealogy ever, never studied it in depth, never looked at it in, in uh, detail, but yet it's there. And because it is one of those types of things that I don't normally memorize for scripture memory, I don't usually run to when there's an issue, there's a problem. What does the genealogy say? But it, there has to be a reason that it's there. And because it's there, it, obviously it's clearly a benefit to us. And so I've spent this last few days focused in on that. And I was amazed. I was excited. I was thrilled just to be able to ponder on it and to think about what we can glean from this genealogy. We've all made an observation this morning that there are two different genealogies. One's in Matthew chapter 1, and the other one is in Luke chapter 3. And uh, they're, they're just filled with all kinds of information, wonderful information. What we said this morning, just as a brief rehearsal of some of the material, is if we stay and look at Matthew chapter 1, and again, I'm not going to read through the entire genealogy. You can do that. It starts off with just that Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, his genealogy, the son of Abraham, the son of David, and then he goes on and he explains from Abraham all the way down to David, uh, to David. David and then down to Jesus Christ. And he gives us this information. What we glean from just that tidbit so far is this fact that Jesus, the one, his pedigree, the person that God sent, that Jesus was a real human being. And I explained this morning how that was so important in first century to just get that information because some were denying his humanness. Some were questioning it. You and I, we don't have that thought anymore. It's been developed through church history, theology, and we're very comfortable with that. But this was an important aspect in teaching that was new to some of the early church believers. We also pointed out that he was the rightful heir that he was from Abraham, from David, as there was prophecies in the Old Testament that said, if the, when the Messiah comes, he has to be, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, has to be born of a woman, has to be the, uh, the descendant of Abraham, of David, of Judah, of, of uh, David, and then as well uh, have those miracles. Well, Matthew chapter 1 sets that all at ease, tells us very clearly that this was one who qualified in all of those details. We pointed out that he was a heavenly being. The reason being is in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 1, it says that Jesus, it doesn't say Joseph begat Jesus, it makes a totally different statement about the genealogy where it says in verse 16, Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, and remember what we pointed out? The of whom is what's important in that phrase, grammatically. It refers to, yeah, it's a feminine word. It re, the pronoun refers to Mary, not to Joseph. Of whom it says that he was born, and so it's making very clear reference that Jesus Christ was birthed of Mary. He was not the physical son 
of Joseph. And then that's reiterated in the text as well, where in the next few verses he talks about being conceived by the Holy Spirit, talks about a virgin, quoting from Isaiah 7, a virgin shall conceive. So all of that was detailed already this morning. We pointed out that the fact that Joseph is his legal father. This gets us into this question about these genealogies that we maybe, it's wise to take a few moments. In a genealogy, it can be of one of two ways. It can be that your birth lineage is given, or it could be somebody's adopted into the family or a legal heir. And so it's very clear that what happens in Matthew, that Matthew is talking about begat, begat, begat. He is emphasizing that there is physical, biological uh, generations taking place from Abraham down to David, from David all the way down to Joseph. But then there's the distinction. He doesn't say Joseph begat, but he still, we look at it, we say, okay, what does this mean? Was Jesus the legal son of Joseph? Yes, he was. Joseph was his earthly father. He was in in the sense that even the townspeople, what did they say? He's the son of the carpenter. Everybody knew he legally was the son of Joseph. Therefore, could he legally inherit that which was passed down from Abraham and David? Yes, because he's the legal son. Now, what gets into the discussion is what does Luke do? Luke does something different, okay? And if you look in the Gospel of Luke, and if you have your finger there in chapter 3, it says that in that text, something different In fact, I want you to catch something right off the top. In Matthew chapter 1, what does it say in verse 16? And who's the first person listed? Jacob begat who? Okay, now go to Luke chapter 3. It's it's, um, something that's strangely and very specifically stated differently. If you go to Luke chapter 3, and we're going to start getting the genealogy in reverse. And it says, Jesus himself, verse 23, began to be about 30 years of age, and it starts giving us information. The son of Joseph, which was what? What do you have in your Bible? The son of Heli? Okay, is that what you have? Okay, if, if you have a Bible like mine, and it's, it's trying to, the translation is trying to be very clear, what does it do with son of? It's what? Okay, you have a phrasing there. Some of us have the son of Heli, which was, the son of Joseph, which was, what does it do with the son of Heli? What does it do with the son? It's italicized. What's that say? Okay, it's given to help explain, but in the original, it didn't have that word. So it's just saying Joseph was of Heli in one passage, but the other one says he was begotten by Jacob. How can it be that he has two dads? Well, we understand that in this modern world. That probably wasn't the case. What is the possibility here? What's that? Uh, Could be two names Or if you start going back and comparing the rest of the genealogies, they're different. And so the explanation that's given for some of this, okay, in the two genealogies, and this is is where I'm going to land, okay, you can do some research on it, but for the sake of time, let me just tell you the summary of it. Based on uh, what has happened, Luke doesn't give you all the same names. In fact, several of the names are different uh, after David, Uh, in Luke's rendering as opposed to Matthew's rendering. 
and some of those in Matthew are the begats, and some of those are sons of. What could be the translation in Luke chapter 3 when it says, of Heli, is what he's talking about is Joseph is related to Heli. How is he related to Heli? How in your family, how is it that you might say, this is my son, but he's not your biological son, but he's related to you? How can that happen? Okay, it could be a grandson, but he's still related to you uh, biologically. Okay, it could be a son-in-law. Okay, I have two biological sons. I have two sons. We call them son-in-laws. But are they part of my family? Very much so. And so the, the, where most scholarship ends is they believe that the distinction happens is one of the family trees that is given, one of the genealogies, Matthew, is given of Joseph's lineage, the legal lineage. The other one, Luke, is taking and saying the biological lineage was taking Mary's uh, biological family. And there's this, but that explanation is going to handle some really important discussion that we'll get into in a few moments. So for the sake of discussion, let's conclude, and let's say, and you can go and study all the details, Matthew is dealing with, legal, with Jesus Christ's legal genealogy, and in marriage, through marriage, we're getting his biological, Mary's family tree the physical family tree of Mary. Both of them end up at the same spot. They end up at David and they end up at Abraham. Isn't it amazing how God brought two people together who were both, they were descendants of David, but could have been from two different sons of David, but they end up getting married generations years later so that he is a double recipient of the Davidic line both the legal and the biological. And so we also take it all the way back. Luke is different in that it goes all the way back to Adam, which brings in the entire human race. That's going to be part of our discussion in a few moments. That's very, very, very important. Where you had said, Pooch, you would ask, what about Kaniah or Jeconiah, as the passage says, that we're going to get into a discussion. This will help explain from my perspective as far as what I understand. But for now, just to summarize it very quickly, a legal genealogy, and then we have a biological genealogy. Both are extremely legitimate to say that he was a descendant of David. And so with that in mind, let me remind you something that I just referenced very quickly. The genealogical records from Jesus are totally different than all the Jews in the world today because they kept their records up for the priest and for significant people would keep it in the temple. Or some of you, if you were living that day, you might just choose to put your genealogical records in the temple for safekeeping. But the temple had a problem in 70 AD. Okay? It was ransacked. It was ravaged. It was totally destroyed. Everything within it was either hauled away or destroyed by the Romans who totally annihilated the city and destroyed all the records. Therefore, all the genealogical records that the Jews kept for centuries, they're all up in smoke, except for one person's genealogical records that were recorded in Matthew and Luke. The one that goes all the way back and can still prove his genealogical records, Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing how God did that, how God pre, uh, pre um, 
prevented Jesus' records from being destroyed just so that it would satisfy even the skeptics. So people today, if they were to say, well, how do we know Jesus came from Abraham? If it came from a Jew, you could easily say, how do you know what your heritage is? Okay, so it's, it's just a wonderful, wonderful way of God working providentially in all those documents. But let me go on. When we, it talks about the pedigree of Jesus. We looked at that this morning. Let's expand a little bit, okay? A little bit more than we, we referenced some of this. It also talks about the people. The genealogy gives his pedigree. It talks about the people that are in his history. We observe that in that genealogy, Jesus' genealogy is way different than most people's because it included ladies. Don't, be, don't take that as, a, as an offensive statement. This was just history the way it was. In, in patriarchal societies and male-dominated societies, they didn't usually include the moms. But Jesus' genealogy included how many ladies did we point out this morning? There was four without Mary that the record is. And most all of those four, they have a very disreputable background. We also pointed out that those four had something else in common. What was the commonality between all four of those ladies? Okay, they're, they're non-Jews. They're all Gentiles. And so that could happen between these four people. And we pointed out already they were all Gentiles. We pointed out that they came from unsavory backgrounds. We pointed out that they don't even name the last one. We put her name up here for sake of discussion, Bathsheba. What is Matthew in the genealogy? What does he say? How does he describe her? The wife of... Yeah, he doesn't even give her a name. You know, that's the, that's the feeling of, of what they had for her. But it's not just ladies that sometimes had unsavory backgrounds. There are some others that are included in that inheritance, that genealogy. There's some guys that have some questionable characteristics and traits and activities that have gone on in the past. Look in Matthew chapter 1. Jump down. There's several of them listed all, all in one grouping. Solomon begat... I'm going to use the, term, the, the, um, the word, uh, the name that I'm more familiar with, even though it may be a different uh, pronunciation that's written in Matthew. Solomon begat Rehoboam. Rehoboam begat Abijah. Abijah begat Asa. Asa begat Je- Jehoshaphat, or Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begat Joram. Joram begat Uzziah. Uzziah begat Jotham. Jotham begat Achaz. Achaz begat Ezekiel. Ezekiel begat Manassas. Manassas begat... Okay, I'm done with saying the names quickly, okay? What you have here is you have a listing of some of the kings... What do we know about some of these kings that we just mentioned? Like Manassas? He's, yeah, yeah, which is really interesting that you point out, okay, Rehoboam, Ahaz, Manassas, and, and Jeconiah, all of them have a statement in their stories. If you go back and look in their accounts, they all have some type of statement that really clearly goes something like this. It says, he walked not in the ways of David with the Lord. He did evil during his days. Every single one of them has a connotation and a presentation that they were not a good king. There is a couple good kings mentioned here. One of them is Uzziah. He was a good king. Do you remember? He reigned like 50-some years, a wonderful king, and he got so caught up with himself that he was a great king. What did he do? Yeah, do, do you remember? He, did some, he violated something that kings weren't supposed to do. Okay. Do you remember Ozias in Matthew? But Uzziah, do you remember? He goes into the temple. And when they're, when they're threatened by the attacks, he goes in the temple and he tries to offer sacrifice. And he's immediately struck with 
Why? That's not his job. He's not of the line of Aaron. You know, he's not of the priestly line. And yet he is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And again, I'm going to submit to you that the reason that Jesus didn't sanitize God, didn't sanitize the genealogical records of Jesus, is he is presenting that Jesus, no matter what the family background, if they're part of this family, they would be accepted by the Messiah. That is a wonderful truth for you and I today. That our backgrounds don't make a difference. Now, again, to God. Again, we have society that oftentimes, if there's a blemish in your background, people would hold it against them. Not so much in America, but around the world this is still true. And what we're seeing is a truth that is illustrated, this truth. You do not have to be limited in your spiritual growth or service because of your family history. That's a profound truth. That's a wonderful truth. That's an exciting truth that I do not have to be handicapped just because, let's say, just because in my, ba- in my family tree there, was, there were some addicts. Therefore, I'm doomed to be an addict. Not true by the grace of God. Can God break family genealogical hand-me-downs? Yes. Yes, can I, can, can, can I be used of God even if in my family there was somebody that just shamed the Lord Jesus Christ? We can still be used. Okay, we can still be used. You know, one of our men here, he said, you know, we were joking about just before the service, he's related to the blue-eyed seven. You've heard of them in this area, right? Six, Six excuse me, Okay. <laughs> Since you saw Pooch correct me, you never guess who I'm talking about. Okay. <laughs> but just because that's in the background, does that hinder all the descendants from being used by, by the Lord? The answer is no. The answer is no. Even if, let's take it within the Christendom, what if there's a family member of yours that denied, you know, move it into a persecution area? Move it into an area where all of a sudden, you know, we would have to de- uh, denounce Christ or we could lose our life. What if you're related to somebody in the church setting and they denied Jesus Christ? What if your mom or dad would deny their faith? Does that mean God can't use you in the church? No, not at all. Because in this aspect, he is making it clear that these individuals, they have individual, independent choice of how they serve. And that doesn't necessarily um, determine the following generations what they can do and cannot do. I'm going to come back to that in a few moments. But God can save and use people that have had bad backgrounds. Thank God that's true. I don't know about you. I thank God this is true. I wasn't blessed like some of you to grow up in a Christian home. There is some garbage in my life that I wish I wouldn't even remember. I wish it were gone but I can still be used by God, despite background. The other thought, God can use people who grew up in ungodly homes. Praise God for that truth. Okay? God can help people overcome sins that were visited upon generation after generation. Do you remember how he says that the sins will be visited upon the Father and the Son? God can break that pattern of sinful repetition. This thought, God can enable people with poor education or learning skills, bad background, to learn and memorize the Word of God. Some of you are examples of this. You were considered in school downright dumb. 
okay? That you, you, can, you said of yourself, some of you have shared with me, I, didn't, you know, I couldn't memorize anything. And then you get saved, and it's amazing what you can remember when it comes to the Word of God. How God can just help you to overcome background. God can forgive and use repentant people who have had developed addictions in their sinful past. It is amazing. There was a true story of Colgate, the individual, William Colgate, who he developed the Colgate Empire with the soaps and all the toothpaste and different things like that. He was in a Baptist church. They were holding evangelistic meetings. And during these evangelistic meetings, a lady had come forward who was known in the town where they were at that she was the local prostitute. She got born again. She repented of her sin. Well, the following Sunday, she comes in before the church. She wants to get baptized and join the church. So when they presented to the church body, is it okay for her to be baptized and join our church? There was a tremendous silence in the church. Nobody wanted to make a motion to let this gal get baptized and join the church because of her background. Then these words are recorded that Colgate said... I guess we blundered when we prayed that the Lord would save sinners. We forgot to specify what kind of sinners. We'd better ask him, the Lord, to forgive us for this oversight. The Holy Spirit has touched this woman, made her truly repentant, but the Lord apparently doesn't understand that she's not the type we want him to rescue. Next time we better spell it out better before the Lord. After he stood up and made that statement, he sat back down. And the preacher said, is there a first? And guess what? There was a whole bunch of them. Okay? He had it right. He had it right that God accepts those individuals. Therefore, we should do likewise when they're repentant of the Lord. Okay, so we got the people, the pedigree. We also mentioned we have heroic and godly individuals that are in that story, which ties into what we had just said. We point out this morning there's Abraham, there's David, there's Solomon, there's Hezekiah, there's Josiah that, that, that are mentioned. And what I wanted to catch is put these two together. You've got some wicked kings and you've got some really good kings. And this brings me to this thought. Our salvation, sanctification, or service is not guaranteed by godly ancestors. Do you believe that? Just because your parent was saved doesn't mean you are saved. Does that make sense? Okay, just because they were serving the Lord in a very uh, sincere way and sold out doesn't mean that the kids in that family are. It is a personal, individual choice. In the sense that the, the statement is made, God doesn't have grandkids. Each and every person needs to be born again. And so the statement, salvation and sanctification are not inherited They're personal decisions that you and I make. And we need to reiterate this to our kids because our kids growing up in a church like this where they've seen and hear the Word of God, what can they immediately and erroneously assume? I'm okay with God just because mom and dad, just because the people here. It has to be a personal choice. And so that individuality is so important. It is so important that we just say to our kids time and time again, you need to make a decision for Christ. You need to be dedicated. I hope by my example, I'm encouraging that. But it is profound to think about this. And there's a whole, there's a whole other thought to develop for another time. But it is amazing when you go through the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to get the names wrong. So I'm not going to give them. You have one king who's godly followed by an ungodly king. 
then it's followed by a godly king, by an ungodly king, and then it's followed by a godly king, Josiah, who's eight years old, starts the revival. In those five generations, they didn't repeat. They, they skipped generations. Is it possible that we serve the Lord and our kids may choose not to serve the Lord? Is that possible? We hope not, but how does that happen? It's the free will of those children to be choosing. That they have a choice. We want to make sure that we lay it out so they choose to do what's right. They don't have the erroneous thought that just because of dad, just because of mom. And so the genealogy of Jesus Christ, there's a lot of teaching there and preaching. The genealogy is filled with some unknowns. There are nine names that are given in the genealogy that are given in Matthew chapter 1. These nine individuals that are listed, Abiad, Eliakim, Azor, Sadok, Achim, Eliud, Eliezer, Matthew or Mathan, Jacob, those that are just towards the end of the genealogy before Joseph is listed, we don't know a thing about any of those. There is no historical record. There is no biblical record. They basically lived during the intertestamental period. And so we don't have any idea what these guys were, were about, what they did, where they lived, how they operated with them and the Lord. But God knew them. And just this is, you know, I hope I'm not stretching truth in any way, shape, or form, but it, it strikes me that God knows the unknown people, unknown to us, that God knows them. Which, which just, it just, for me, this is a reassuring thought, and, and I see it portrayed in the world today, that there are millions and millions of people who love the Lord around this world today that we don't know. But God knows them. We'll meet them in heaven one day, but there are millions around the world. And you know what goes vice versa? We're here, and we may not make a big splash in this world. We may not have a big name in this world in Christendom, but God knows us. God knows who we are. God has a plan for our lives like he did for these nine men, that they were used in his redemptive plan. God has a plan for us who are basically unknowns. You know, probably three states away, they don't know about us in churches that are gathering this evening. They don't know who we are, but that's okay. God does. God knows about us. And do we count with God? The answer is yes. Does he keep track of us? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we don't need to make a big splash. It's just, am I right with God? Am I serving the Lord Jesus Christ to the best of my ability? So you got the pedigree. You got the people. Now can I show you a couple different thoughts here? The permanent nature of God's word that is clearly demonstrated in this genealogy. And I'm going back to the account where there's a man listed in Matthew chapter 1 whose name was Jeconiah, Kaniah, however you want to state it, based upon the different spellings of it. Let me go back and give, give you what we're talking about. What I'm getting at is this. God is honest. When he says something, it's true. And not only when he says it, it's true. It is also when he says, this is what I'm going to do, then what's that mean? It, it's going to happen. He's going to do it. Okay? So, what we have demonstrated here in a couple different ways is this. We have, number one, that thousands of years before Messiah comes, okay, God said he's going to come be born of a woman. He was, as we demonstrated this morning, through Abraham's seed. Verse 1 and then verse 2. Very clearly. It happened just as God said. He's going to come through Judah. 
Why Judah amongst the other 12? We'll, we'll touch on that in a few moments. Okay? But it happened just as he said, Judah, of that, of that one of the 12. It's going to come through David. Okay? And then it's going to show up just as God promised. Okay? I'm going to get to Jeconiah in a few moments. Just hang on with me. The point is that God works to keep his word. And when he does that, he works in providential ways. Providential ways that, if we started defining them, that are unconventional. God works in ways that we typically, we wouldn't pick. In fact, the genealogy shows us very clearly. Okay, God used women, recorded women, when that was not the norm. But God doesn't work always by the norm. God uses the abnormal. You and me. (laughs) God uses works in ways that may be not conventional. God included Gentiles in the Jewish, uh, the Messiah's genealogy. Why would you do that? That might discredit him. God chose to do that. It wasn't conventional for those who were the Jews that would say no mixed blood, no mixed blood, and have that same attitude towards the Samaritans when they would read this. But God doesn't work by conventional means. God works outside the box at times. God does this, okay? Why does God use ungodly kings to help propagate the seed of of Jesus, the seed of David? Okay, you and I, we would think, okay, it's going to be a pure bloodline, pure not only in Jewish bloodline, but these are going to be outstanding saints. That wasn't the case unconventional method that God was using. Why didn't God always follow the normal inheritance rules? The normal inheritance rules operated this way. The inheritance, the the firstborn would get double portion, okay? And they would get the one that the the family name would pass down to them. Can you think of any non-firstborns that were in the genealogical record of Messiah? Okay, Solomon's not listed in, in, um, he is in this one, I'm sorry. But Solomon's one, you're right. Okay, Judah is one. Judah is one. Okay, Jacob is one. David is one. Solomon is one. Okay, do you have these that, you know, they, they weren't the firstborn sons. But God chose to work this way, which also brings me to this thought, that this is an important thought. God works unconventionally, and when he's working, he doesn't always explain himself. Why, why did he include these ladies? Okay, the, why did he choose the non-firstborns? We don't know. Maybe you do, but the rest of us don't. Okay. You know, why did he pick Judah, let's say? Judah wasn't the firstborn. Reuben was. There is a suggestion that maybe he picked Judah because of what Judah did when they were in Egypt. If you recall, all the boys got together. They decided to sell Joseph, or they were going to kill him first, and then they came up with the idea of selling him. Okay, they sold him. He goes into Egypt. We know the whole story. Lives there for decades after decades. The, The sons end up coming down and when they come down, they're seeking for food. And the second time they come down, it is that, that they have to bring Benjamin with them. And when they are leaving, David has his cup. Do you remember this, part of this story? He has the cup put in Benjamin's bag. Do you remember that? 
And then he has his soldiers go. They arrest the, the group. They leave Benjamin for last. They search Benjamin's bag. And they say, we're going to haul you back. You're going to be a prisoner. And they all go back. And when they come back to the palace, and there you have Joseph. He can understand, but they still don't know it's Joseph. It is Judah who says, this is because of what we did years ago. God has found us out. He's the first one to repent openly for what had happened. And then he does something else in that story. He says, take me, let Benjamin go. Is that why God picked Judah? I don't know. But that's the most commendable thing the guy did in Scripture. Why God picked him? Why, why does God take Ruth, who is a Moabite, who they're not supposed to marry, but he allows in the family tree? I don't know. I know she's a good character. She's a convert, a convert, and she's a proselyte. She gets with Boaz. Why did that work? I don't know. I don't know. Why, why it is that God you know, does this? The bottom line is we don't understand why God does all, everything that he does. Do you remember Job? Remember Job? I don't know why you're letting me suffer. Do you remember God's response? Where were you when I made everything? Bottom line is... God doesn't have to explain himself. We want the explanation so we can make it more palatable to other people. But the reality is our sovereign God can do anything and everything he wants to do. So we don't understand. I mean, I'm going to throw this out and try to be very blunt with you. Why does God allow one of you to have lots of trials and some of us very few? Why does God give some of our friends great blessings, great riches, and some not so much? Why does God do that? Why does God work this way? Why does he give some sickness, whether it be cancer, a nervous disorder, why does he give it to some of our friends and the rest of us enjoy health? Why? How are we supposed to answer that when they look at you and they say, why me? I don't know. I know that God is sovereign. God is always good. And God makes no mistakes. I don't understand it. But that's where I respond in faith and say, God, I don't even understand how you worked in bringing this genealogy. Why did you work with the people the way you did? Why is it that you bless some saints in their witness and in their, in their ministry, in their church ministries, from my perspective. Some pastor, their works just blossom, and some pastors work for years and they see nothing. Why is that? I don't know. I don't know. But God doesn't owe me an explanation. And that shouldn't move me in my faith in this God who is all-powerful, this God who doesn't have to explain himself, this God who is sovereign in the sense that he can do whatever he chooses to do. And so as I look at this, the way that he's working providentially in history, you know, why is America blessed the way it was? Yeah, we can respond and say because we, we give out the gospel and we were very impacting in gospel. And that's true historically. But initially, why did he bless America the way he did? When they were, they were the area to be ministered unto. It's God's providential ruling. And so I look and say, okay, God's work 
is unconventional at times. God's work is providential. It's unexplainable at times. But I know this, it is unstoppable. When God has a plan, it is going to happen. It is going to happen. The reason I say that is this. Satan knew the prophecies about Jesus Christ. He knows Scripture. Do not be fooled. Satan knows the Bible. He quoted it to Jesus Christ. He's, he's aware of these prophecies. The prophecies that are in particular, God is favoring what group of people? The Jews. So who does Satan go after, especially in the tribulation? The Jewish nation. Why? Because God has said that they will, they will endure. They will, they will last through all of human history. And if he can prove God wrong through genocide, through attack, and wipe out the Jews so there's none left, what has he done with God? Yeah, he's proved him wrong. He's beaten God. So think about this. Think in the genealogical history of Jesus Christ. Was Satan active? Did he know the promises of Abraham, Judah, and David? Yes. Did he try to thwart their, their prophecies at times? Did he attack their families? Yes. So we look at this and say, okay, he was active in trying to thwart, thwart God's work through, the, through history, trying to destroy the Jewish lineage multiple times. The book of Esther. You have Herod trying to kill off the children. You have genocide happening throughout history. But God protected those people. They survived among all the nations. And even in the wickedness of Jesus' ancestors, even by some of them choosing to go and follow Satan's idolatry and things like that, it is interesting that he could not stop God's plan to bring Messiah through this family tree. One author put it this way, and I found this, for me, this was profound. Maybe it means nothing to you. But he said, the sins of Jesus' forerunners was not able to unhook the railroad cars of his coming from the engine of God's plan. That is, God has a plan, it can't be thwarted. Now, think of how that applies to you and me. Do we engage in, run into sin in our own lives? Yes. Do we run into sinners? Yes. Is our society under the control, to some degree, of the God of this world? Yes. Will that thwart God's plan? No. No. Absolutely not. What is God's will for every single one of us in this room who are born again? That we become conformed to the image of His Son. Is God doing that in your life? If you're saved, God is doing that. And even though you might disrupt it, and you might in a little bit of way try to unhook the car, you can't. God is going to bring you to conform to Jesus Christ. He's going to keep on working, keep on working, keep on working. And eventually it's going to come to pass when you get to heaven. But the plan of God for you, it is unstoppable. God is working in your heart and in your life. And at moments you say, I don't know, am I ever growing, going to grow some more? Yes. Will my kids ever become human? Yeah, will they grow if they get saved? Yes. God's work is unstoppable. Now, this brings me to where I said I wanted to mention Jeconiah. It is consistent with Scripture. Here is the story that I have just a couple minutes for. In the book of Jeremiah, there was a king at that time. His name was Jeconiah, or Jeconiah, however you want to say it. 
He was the king at the time. When Jeremiah was preaching, he wanted nothing to do with Jeremiah. He was the one that was helping to get Jeremiah put in the pit and different things like that. What happens is Jeremiah pronounces a curse upon him. The curse goes this way, okay? And it happened just shortly before the Babylonians came in and destroyed the Jews. The curse is recorded in Jeremiah 22, verse 30. Here it is. No man of his seed, Jeconiah's seed, no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. In other words, no biological descendant of Jeconiah is going to be on the throne. And yet, what we have here in Matthew chapter 1, verse 12, we have Jeconiah's name listed. How is this possible? How is it possible that there's a curse, a condemnation, none of the descendants of Jeconiah are going to be on the throne, and yet Jesus still is a valid candidate for the throne of Messiah? It reconciles with what I shared with you already. Okay, What you have here is this. The idea of being a descendant of Jeconiah, does it disqualify Jesus who will one day occupy the throne? Um, I don't think so. Here's why. Okay, The curse is specific concerning of his seed. In other words, he has to be a biological offspring. Okay, The genealogy of, in Matthew is Joseph's lineage or legal inheritance. Was Jesus through Joseph a biological offspring of Jeconiah? No. No. Okay, was he a legal offspring? Okay, okay. So he's of the legal line, but not of the bloodline. The genealogy of Luke deals with the bloodline of Mary back to David. And so we have to look and say, is Jeconiah's name in the bloodline of Mary? Okay, let's look. There we got Jeconiah. And Jeconiah is right across from David. David is right here at the bottom of this column. Okay? Do you want to see something interesting? David's here on the bottom left. Where is David in Luke? Third column. Go down, number four. Who comes after David? Nathan. Who's after David in Matthew? Solomon. So we've got two different bloodlines from David. One is the legal line, and one is the bloodline. So there isn't a contradiction there's just a clarification here that he could legally be a descendant, but he couldn't be of the bloodline of Jeconiah. So it fits perfectly. There's no contradiction. He is extremely consistent with scriptures. All of it comes down to that God worked in this marvelous way for one purpose, to save his people from his sins. All of this was designed because of God's grace working it out so you and I could get saved in time. Grace is the overriding factor here. When you look at it and go, this genealogical chart, God's love, God's greatness, God's grace. God's grace. I was reading a story about grace. World War II. There was a pilot that's an American in 1943. His name is Charlie Brown. Charles is his proper name, but they call him Charlie Brown. And Charlie Brown was a pilot. No, he's not going after the Red Baron, okay, or flying his dog, you know, dog, dog house. Charlie Brown is, was flying one of these B-17s. He had a mission that he, along with others, were going over German cities, and they were bombing them in 1943. 
But he got separated from the group of other planes, and his plane got splattered with all, all kinds of anti-aircraft uh, shelling and whatnot, and his, several of his crew were seriously injured. One of the engines was gone. The tail was damaged to the point that they didn't know if it would last. And the worst part about it, their compass was gone as well. And so they're flying, and it's still a little bit right before dawn, and it's dark, and they are just confused. They are headed deeper into Germany. And as the sun comes up, all of a sudden, they're discovered flying lower because of the damage to the plane. And so the Germans, their, their air force, sent up one of their pilots to shoot this plane down, this bomber down. The man's name was Franz, Franz Stigler, S-T-I-G-L-E-R. And he was sent up as the pilot to go and shoot this plane down. And as the sun was rising, he got close to this plane. And he saw it in such bad condition that he was moved with compassion. He, he realized that these people had no idea where they were going. He could easily take them out. But they were an enemy who was in desperate straits. So what he did is he came close to them and he waved in communication to them and they got the gist, follow me. And he led them away from the turnaround and away from Germany and back towards the coast. They survived. Franz Stigler got back to the Air Force Base. They asked what happened to the plane. He said, I really don't know what happened. Probably crashed. That's what he thought ended up. But they did end up, Charlie Brown and his crew ended up getting across the channel back to England and landed the plane, and it literally fell apart when they landed. But they survived. What a picture of grace. That that one who the enemy could have taken him out, but he, was just, he withheld what they could have gotten at that moment. Forty-six years later, Charlie Brown met face-to-face with Franz Stigler. And he was able to say, thank you. They got all the records compared. They figured out who it was. And he was able to say, thank you for helping us, for showing us grace, even though we were enemies. My friend, we don't have to wait 46 years to say thank you to Christ. We can do it right now. We have this service designed where we can say to him, thank you. Thank you for saving our souls. Thank you for the work that you have done. Thank you for giving us your grace and your salvation. Let's sing about that grace salvation before we celebrate communion as we think about God's graciousness to us.